Welcome back to When Bad Things Happen to Good People, a podcast about censorship and the arts. My name is Todd Sullivan. Joining me as always is Peter Raman. Hello, hello. And today we are beginning our look at Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut Jr. Or The Children's Crusade. A duty dance with death. That's right. Well, <laughs> well, this is, uh, I, I, we were discussing a little bit before we started about nonlinear books and yeah. how it's a bit of a challenge sometimes to, um, you know, kind of order everything, uh, in, in your brain when you're getting the information out of order. So, you know, there's a challenge to this book around that. Um, we'll get, we'll get into that in, in due course, but, uh, maybe why don't you walk us through uh, where and why it was banned. Sure. Um, let me just see what... Uh, okay, so we have banned books, Slaughterhouse-Five, from politics and prose... Sorry, sorry politics-prose.com. Kurt Vonnegut's World War II classic was variously challenged, banned, and burned across the United States from 1972 onward, and most recently in 2007. I don't know when oh. this was... When this article was written, so maybe it was banned more recently than that, but... The book was banned in Levittown, New York in 1975, North Jackson, Ohio in 1979, and Lakeland, Florida in 1982 for its explicit sexual scenes, violence, and obscene language. Slaughterhouse-Five was challenged as recently as 2007 in school district in Howell, Michigan, because the book contained strong sexual content. Upon reviewing the book, the country prosecutor concluded... After reading the book in question, it is clear that the explicit passages illustrated a larger literary, artistic, or political message and were not included solely to appeal to the prurient interests of minors. Which, I mean, yeah. That's fair, right? <laughs> and uh, we have, um, I found an article that had some of um, Vonnegut's thoughts on uh, being banned. In 1973, in an interview with Library Journal, Vonnegut said, it's the same thing every time. They ban something of mine. The ACLU jumps in, loses the case in the lower court, and wins the appeal. After all, they can't win. What they're doing is unconstitutional. When Slaughterhouse-Five was burned in North Dakota in 1973, Vonnegut responded with a letter to the school board president defending the novel as not sexy and do not argue in favor of wildness of any kind in terms of the language, he argued. It is true that some of the characters speak coarsely. That is because people speak coarsely in real life, especially soldiers and hardworking men speak coarsely, and even our most sheltered children know that. And we all know, too, that those words really don't damage children much. They didn't damage us when we were young. It was evil deeds and lying that hurt us. Interesting. Yeah. So it's not surprising to me that, that Vonnegut would be or would have been troubled by you know his his books being banned there's nothing in my mind remotely hateful negative you know anything that would cause other than you know the specifics of oh they said some bad words oh yeah. billy pilgrim had sex oh you know yeah like and 
And there's there's a sex scene in this in this first hundred pages that is one of the least sexy things yeah. <laughs> I have ever read. I mean, when he yeah. when he um, when he makes love to his wife after the yeah. wedding, that was yeah. just a, it's like a paragraph long. It was just like, okay, yeah, it's it's pretty awkward, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it is not sexy. It is not titillating it is in not, any way, no, right? No, like, no. and and really, like. I mean, the the bulk of the book, right? Like, you know, he 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 definitely argued it right in the sense that it's not it's not there to be salacious, right? No, it, it's to present a real view of how people kind of experience the war and and uh, you know how people really talk to each other and that kind of thing. And yeah, to ban something because of that is pretty uh, pretty pretty big overreach, I think, right? Yeah. So yeah, um, but it you know definitely. Uh, uh, you know, there's there's some stuff in there, but you know, in terms of some of the things that we've looked at in, in on this podcast or that are out there um, that are potentially still in schools and things like that, it I don't you know, like it's kind of tame in a sense. Yeah, right? and I like, I mean, I don't remember the book that well to know whether or not things get a whole lot worse in the second half, but from the things they pointed out, the language and the and the sex and. I can't imagine it getting any worse than we've already seen. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, we know there's the, you know, the firing squad uh, sequence that's uh, going to been be heavily coming. foreshadowed. Yeah, yeah. Right. So we know that's coming up, but um, yeah, I mean, I think you have to encompass some um, grit and some, you know, imagery that is maybe not, uh, you know, all roses and sunshine when you're talking about war. I mean, Oh yeah. I don't know how you could discuss war. The point of it is to get at some of the horror around that experience. Right. And, and how terrible it is to, to be part of and to witness it and that kind of thing. Right. So to dance around that or to shy away or clouded in some way, I think would, would really be a disservice to the story. Right. So, you know, that makes sense. And, you know, when you, when you read it, you don't really, you know, you don't get an impression that there's stuff thrown in just for the sake of it or that, you know, this is, this is here as a exclamation point or to be salacious or titillating or anything like that. Right. I mean, it's, it's very, all the, all the interactions between the characters are very realistic, right? Even, even some of the inner thoughts of of Billy, you know, even though his mind wanders and, and that kind of thing, right? Like, they're still very realistic, um, you know, in terms of how someone, uh, you know, in that character, you know, would kind of process things. So, um, yeah, I think I think it would be a real disservice to the story if there were just sunshines and rainbows or, you know, we gloss over the fact or the language is super clean or something like that. You know, that's that's not how soldiers talk. Yeah. 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 I do think it's interesting that um, a lot of well, a lot of the book in general, but you particularly notice in in the parts about the war, it almost feels very mundane in the way that he's hmm. describing it. But that's also the way he describes kind of everything else. Yeah. Um, and in a way, it's sort of that that you know the banality of evil kind of concept that mm-hmm. you know as much as there were these these you know huge um, you know violent conflicts and everything else. You know, there's also the minutia moments in war where it's just guys trudging in bad shoes, hoping to stay alive for one more day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I honestly took no notes on this. Um, okay. I didn't even know how we were going to approach talking about this because of the way it ping pongs <laughs> yeah. so much. I, and I took a lot of notes. I but see they, that. They're so, very, 
Um, <laughs> very plot, uh, like, well, I mean, they're plot centric, I guess. Yeah. But like, really, because it's such a fluid, non-linear book, it, it's it's difficult. I'm just kind of just trying to describe to myself in my notes, kind of where things are, are going back and forth. Right? Okay, he slipped through time, or here, or you know, he flashed back to this or that. Um, and honestly, it, it's been a while. So you know, as we were talked about, I think in the in the live episode, I did uh, read this on November 11th. Yeah. Uh, or the bulk of it, the first four. And it's chapters. now December third when we're recording. Yeah, so, so it's it's been a little while. It's had time to get hazy. So, I, on the other hand, just finished page or chapter five like uh, an hour ago or so. So okay, so it's so a it's fresh, fresher in my yeah, mind. Yeah, it's fresh but, in your mind, and for me, I'll I'll be referring back to my notes. Well, so. you know, since you have notes, I'm thinking maybe we let you guide us along, and I will share my thoughts as we come along. But I would like to start by saying this is really a non-traditionally plotted book Mm -hmm. to the extent that the first chapter isn't even really the first chapter of the book itself. Yeah, it's kind of essentially a preamble or like almost an author's introduction. That's what I think a lot of authors would have treated it that way as like a prelude or a foreword or something like that. But because of the fact that Vonnegut does refer to himself in the novel periodically as well as one of the characters as right? somebody yeah. who is there where yeah. at the at the the place where Billy Pilgrim ends up um it does kind of work as the first chapter yes yes but the first chapter is very much about you know Vonnegut talking about his struggles to try to write what he at that time called his Dresden novel mm-hmm. which became Slaughterhouse 5 yeah um and there was, you know, I think the the one anecdote that stood out to me from that chapter is when he went to to visit a friend of his mm-hmm. who had also been in the war, um, drink whiskey, talk with his friend, and try to reminisce and and hit on some some memories about what they had experienced together. Yeah. And the man's wife became increasingly angry over the course of this conversation they were having. Yes, but I mean, we. we he does describe that the reason for her anger was because she thought the war book that he was, you know, purporting to yeah. write would be um, something that would glorify war or that would, you know, be something that would, um, you know, maybe popularize uh, war or, you know, give give it some bravado or, or something like that, which he then disillusions her too, right, by describing what he's actually trying to write. And then she's kind of on board with it. Yeah. <laughs> and in her defense, I mean, that is, has traditionally been, at least at that time, the way war stories were mm-hmm. told. They're almost propaganda. It's almost yeah. saying like, rah, rah, we are the good guys and they were the bad guys. This was a, a just fight and it was God's will. And, and that's not the kind of story that Vonnegut was trying to tell. Shout out to your other podcast, Half Cut Conspiracy Theories, where you guys uh, did a look at uh, U.S. military uh, spending on books and movies and things like we that. Did. Yeah, that was a fun episode. <laughs> yeah, about propaganda, about right? Propaganda. Which, but yeah, I mean, even at that time, you know, in the seventies, where uh, you know that kind of thing was was happening, um, you know, where there was money for that and that kind of thing. Yeah, we we kind of get uh, get her, um, you know. Um, anger at uh, at another war book, or at least you know bringing her family into it. But um, yeah, but the, she she reminded him, or you know, I'm, I, I say reminded him because it felt like he had the sense when he was writing about that part of the book. But like that, essentially, wars are fought by children. Mm-hmm. Like the men who go to war are are so insanely young yeah. that they might as well still be children. Yeah, 
they're confused, they're well, scared, I mean, they you Billy know. Pilgrim, you know, is a is a example of that, right? I mean, is was he seventeen or eighteen? I think I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah, like he's he's essentially basically too young or right on the cusp, right, of, of being even old enough to be accepted into the military uh, and off to war, right? Like it's, uh, I think World War II, you know, when we look at from a historical perspective, you know, there's lots and lots of cases of that, you know, children who are younger than 18, right, who are too young to fight but faked their oh, yeah, way yeah, in yeah. or, you know, what what have you, right? Uh, and it it really stands out as we as we see in a later chapter where there's um you know an officer there um, who's who's um, kind of quite old and uh, um, he, he you know he volunteered or something like that but uh, you know he's like twenty years older than kind of the next young yeah you know, next oldest kid yeah, in his yeah. in his unit or something like that right and he just stands out like a sore thumb um, this this kind of older character but. Yeah, I mean, you know, for for me, le- learning a little bit about the the children's crusade, right, which is that kind of comparative, um, you know, a kind of historical thing where they, where they were conscri- conscri- conscripting actual kids, yeah. uh, you know, to to fight wars and and you know, seeing that there's yeah, there's not really much difference, right, in whether it's World War Two or, or other wars, that yeah, it's mainly the young that are going out to fight, right, and I guess some, from a you know from a certain perspective you could argue that they're the easiest to replace i guess you know i mean that's that's a sad and depressing <laughs> well, i know thought, right but, but like yeah that's got to be a portion of what's going through the 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 minds of the military leaders as they you know make these decisions about sending these mm-hmm. you know they don't have no one's invested too much into skills or yeah. you know for these people so if they get erased then we can just pump out another generation another batch, of them or yeah, something train up know. another batch of kids and yeah yeah it sounds like something from um brave new world almost yeah like kind a, of yeah yeah we'll just yeah. we'll just grow another we'll just yeah Bokanovsky group <laughs> exactly send them out yeah um, is there anything else from the first chapter that, that you want to touch on? Cause that was really sort of the only thing that I had. Yeah. I mean, that, I think the other thing around that meeting with his friend, um, that stood out to me as well. Cause the, the, you know, he introduces that he's been struggling with this and he's trying to write it and, you know, humming and hawing, um, you know, it, it establishes that he is an author that he's wrote, written other books, yeah. uh, but he's working on this, you know, quote unquote Dresden novel that he's been trying to write since returning from the war. Um, but when he gets together with his friend finally to sit down, right? So the wife is angry and everything. Um, you know, he, he tells her what the book's really about. She's kind of on board. And then when they actually get to reminiscing about the war and trying to kind of find these, you know, nuggets that he can use for the book, they don't find anything. Yeah. Right. Like they're, they're really unable still. uh, And this is, you know, years past the war. They're still unable to really process you know, some of the horror and some of the, you know, the stuff that, that really affected them. And I thought that was an interesting kind of mm-hmm. thing. Cause when we get into the book, I mean, you know, obviously the book is written about Billy Pilgrim, right? It's not written about the author's real experience, right? Although he does pop up a little bit in the book, but it's written about another character. But it, it does make you wonder, at least it made me wonder if there was overlap, like how much of what Billy Pilgrim experienced was or was similar to what Vonnegut experienced. It could very well be none of it. It could very well be, be some of it. Like I'm sure he's, you know, 
was very capable of imagining things, but it could also be like stories he told, heard from other people. I mean, yeah. I would be probably more than any other book I've ever read. It would be interesting to see like earlier drafts of this to see how it progressed. Because mm. I imagine it must have started as a more traditional narrative of like beginning, middle, and end. And then started to. And it would be interesting to see later, at what yeah. point the whole moving around in time thing began. Mm-hmm. Because that's the core kind of conceit of the novel. The first line of chapter two, which is really the start of the book, that's right. is listen, Billy Pilgrim yeah. has become unstuck in time. Yes. And, and that listen kind of imperative structure comes up a few times in the book. Yeah. You know, as well as uh, what's the other saying? Uh, you know, any t- anytime there's there's a talk about death, yeah, and and not just human death, like it, it extends into animals and things. Yeah, right? there's a there's, so it goes. But then you need to explain why that is too. Yeah, which I don't know if I have a good note around that because uh, there's a little anecdote in the book about why. Yeah, you know, so I, someone we, someone that he knew. Um, no, it's from the Tralfamadorians. Oh, right. Yes. Right. Okay. So, yes. From the time. Yeah. So I don't know. Do we want to talk about that now or wait till the Tralfamadorians yeah, come up? Yeah, maybe we'll, we'll get, we'll get to that in a little bit. Okay. But, uh, yeah. So, um, there, you know, there's a few things that kind of repeat in the book, um, that I think help tie that disjointed timeline together a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. The, so it goes and the hey, listen and you know, that kind of stuff, right? Where it, it kind of holds the book together a little bit because yes, it, it does jump around a lot. And can be a little hard to follow. Yeah, because essentially what happens is Billy Pilgrim um, begins sort of bouncing around through his life, bouncing around in time. So yeah. at one moment, he's in World War II. He closes his eyes. He opens his eyes, and he he's is like 44 years old. Yeah, he's back he's, at he's, work. He's, you know, he's an optometrist. Yeah. Um, you know, or he's on his honeymoon with his wife. He's on his honeymoon or, with his wife, <laughs> yeah. or he's on an alien planet called Tralfamador yeah. with a bunch of aliens that look like um, hands on top of toilet plungers. Um, yes, and at any moment you don't know where he's going to go, or how long he's going to, or be how long he's going moment. to be there. Yeah, yeah. Because sometimes um, he'll he'll jump to one moment and then he'll jump back to the war. Yeah, um, you know, which is. I think kind of the primary line that we're following is, is kind of more the war line and we're, you know, yes. Kind of jumping yeah. around from there, but he'll jump from the war to a, you know, a certain kind of time in his life, jump back, jump back into his life at another point, jump back and, and then kind of, you know, maybe he goes to Trafalgar, right? Like he, he's experiencing a lot of stuff while being in the same kind of moment back in the war, right? The back in the war is kind of where he, he uh, defaults to a lot, yeah. right? Um, and I, I, I took a lot of that, actually. It reminded me of, you know, when you're, you're just doing something on any given day and you, mm-hmm. you have a, an aroma or a sound that reminds you of a memory. So a strong reminiscence. And you're and suddenly kind of back there for back, a yeah. couple of minutes and then someone's like, uh, hello, and you, you snap back to where you are. Yeah. And there's a lot of those moments that in the book, that's sort of what they felt like to me, like him. Mm-hmm. There's you know a very brief scene when he's he's checking someone's eyes with the, the optometry machine that was described as an upside down owl, which yeah. I immediately knew what he was talking about because yeah, I yeah. plugged my face into those things so many times. Exactly, yeah. Um, and then you know he just sort of wakes up and sort of continues the eye exam before snapping back to the war again. But that very much felt like that moment of like I've just reminisced to something and I'm kind of out of where I am right now. And it takes me a second to kind of mm-hmm. refocus. Yeah, and I think there's there's a few situations or circumstances where 
you know, something is happening that he may not, you know, want to witness or be part of. And then he, right. he travels, uh, yeah. you know, backwards or forwards or, or however kind of, you know, he, he's going. Um, and that takes him out of maybe a little bit, you know, unpleasant situation or something like that. Right. So, um, you know, not that he seems to be in control of it or anything like that. It just seems to yeah. happen. Uh, but certainly, you know, kind of, uh, an interesting, um, kind of like, yeah, just, we, we don't know what sets him off is yeah. the thing, right? Like we, we see it happen. Um, but there doesn't appear to be any specific thing like a, you know, it's triggered by this or triggered by that. Um, and sometimes he stays longer. At certain points right? it feels like it, it's almost implied that he's always lived his life this way. Like, yeah, uh, maybe not always. I, I think there's a, a point I where he says it, it happened. Yeah. Right when he was younger, but I don't remember there ever being a point where he said this was the first time it happened. Yeah. But not that it matters. I, I'm trying to remember, but I feel like it the first part was either during basic training or when he actually goes to the war. Could be. But yeah, uh, yeah I mean I mean he's seventeen or eighteen, yeah. right? So, you know, fairly early days in his life and you know, at that point. Either way, it feels very much like how the past can Creep up on creep you, up on and, you, weigh on you yeah. at at distant points in the future as well. Yeah, with with I guess the uh, the other component being that a lot of times it's the future, right? In in kind of his war experience, he's flashing forward yeah. in time quite a bit, right? Fair enough. Obviously, he's quite young in the war, so the the majority of the flashes would you would think would be forward in time rather than to his you know childhood. But we do get a couple of childhood ones yeah. as well. We we have a moment in in in, in the belly. All like mm-hmm, warm and mm-hmm. bubbly and yeah, warm yeah. and cozy, and before he's out into the world, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so, so let's take us through uh, what you have for chapter two. Yeah, so for chapter two, um, so it starts with the, the listen. You know, Billy Pilgrim has come unstuck in time. Um, the chapter starts out with kind of his a little bit of his life in in Ilium, New York, is where um, you know he uh, he grew up. Um, so at this point, it's more just kind of talking about stuff that's happened in his life. So kind of the milestones, right? He went to war, he came back, um, he was in optometry school um, and uh, he went to war, uh, came back, finished the optometry school. Um, I'm not sure if it talked specifically about, I don't have in my notes here, but um, he did have a, a nervous breakdown or panic attack or, you know, kind of thing in the middle of finishing optometry school, but he did come back and finish it. Yeah. Um, he gets married. Um, so the, the daughter of the optometry, um, practice, uh, owner is, has a fancier liking to Billy. He marries her and that's part of how he takes over this booming practice. Optometry business. Right? Yeah. yeah. This booming, you know, with like five offices and, um, money's you know, in the frames. Mo- yeah. And, uh, and he invests in other businesses. Um, he has two kids. So he has I think a daughter. he ends up setting up daughter. one of his own kids into optometry as well, doesn't he? Uh, I, I don't I, think so. I got that no, his son is like. One uh, of his sons went into the Green Berets. Yeah, he's a Green Beret. Um, and then his I guess daughter, his one son, one daughter. I think, I don't have notes here, but I think she went into to medicine potentially, okay. so but not optometry. Um. She, maybe she helped out at the office at some I point. Know, could be. Yeah. Um, 
Um, so he almost dies in a plane crash. Um, right. What a weird. Yeah. Just kind of that never comes thing. up again yet. Uh, well, maybe it came it up. It ca- came up in the sense that there was a, a bit about when he was in the hospital yeah. recovering from that. But yeah, so he, but yeah, he's just in being this, on a plane crashes into the mountains. He's the only one that survives. Yeah, Only survivor. Yeah. Right. Goes, you know, and he's recovering for a long time. And during that time, his wife dies. Right. Right. So, you know, the family, but he's not there because he's in recovery in, I think it's in Canada or something, right? I don't remember. Um, I think it was flying from Montreal or something. And uh, yeah, so he's recovering in like a Canadian hospital and can't, you know, travel. And when he finally comes back, um, that's where he decides to tell people about what he's been experiencing in his life, um, about being, you know, unstuck in time, about his, you know, abduction by the aliens and all this kind of stuff, right? Um, it tells us a little bit about, um, you know, how he got into the war. So he started in the army as a chaplain's assistant, right? Um, he was basically doing, uh, training and something happened to another chaplain's assistant. And so he was like called up, you know, from, from the miners essentially to fill in. Um, but it was, um, that unit that he was supposed to take over for his chaplain's assistant, uh, they ended up being at the Battle of the Bulge. And so he was like thrown into this massive battle. And I think by the time he shows up. There's like the a cha- handful of them. Yeah, there's but, like almost nobody left. But the, when he shows up, the chaplain has already been killed, yeah. I think, right? So he shows up. He's not, you know, doesn't even have boots or any. Like he shows up still yeah, dressed as a civilian. Civilian shoes, yeah. Right. And, uh, you know, his chaplain has been killed. He doesn't know what's going on and he's super young and he just kind of gets thrown into this huge battle Um, and he survives, but he ends up trapped behind enemy lines with three other soldiers. So two are kind of these, you know, scouts that we don't, you know, mysterious scouts that we don't really know too much about. And the other one is um, this, uh, this kind of uh, chubby, like, you know, really kind of braggy, weird, weird dude called Roland Weary. Um, who kind of has all the conversation? He fancies himself a bit of a, a bit of a war hero. Roland yeah. Weary does, and he starts imagining this, like he he and the uh, the two scouts, you know, being kind of a a crusading group. He calls thinks of them as the three musketeers. Yeah, even right? though I don't think he's ever talked no. to the scouts, right? Like no. he's just a weird character. Yeah, um, yeah. So the the first time. So in this chapter, and we don't know, I guess, if it's the first time or not, but at one point uh, they're in the woods, Billy comes unstuck. Um, He sees his, uh, his mother in like a, an old folks home. Um, uh, And then we flashes to um, a party where he's drunk and kind of like, I think either hits on or, you know, does something with the... He brings a woman to a back room or a laundry room or... A cloak room or something like that. Um, And then Weary snaps him out of that. Um, The scouts ditch um, Billy and Roland. (laughs) Yeah, he advises advises them to go and, like, surrender to the nearest... Yeah. (laughs) The nearest Germans they can find. Um, Billy has kind of a bit of a fantasy of, like, dancing in a ballroom and then that kind of... Wasn't he skating? He was skating in like white, um, white baseball socks, basically Something on, like on, a, that, on yeah. a slippery floor slippery of the ballroom. Floor, yeah. So yeah, yeah, and and that kind of just bleeds into an actual kind of memory or or 
you know, forward flash in time where he's giving a speech at the Lions Club because he's just been elected the new president. Right. And he doesn't really know what's going on, but he, you know, he, he and he's surprised at kind of like how eloquent he is and that he's actually able to speak in front of people. Um, and then Weary attacks uh, Billy Pilgrim because uh, he's he's just angry at, at Billy. Uh, well, not angry at Billy, but angry that the scouts left and that his three musketeers are yeah, broken Yeah, well, and up. part of it, I think the reason they left is because Billy has not been... He's been super he's unfocused. He's been slow. Yeah. He's walking funny because he's lost the heel of one of his shoes. So he he's bobs like, up and down. Blah, blah. And, yeah. um, you know, he, you know every, he's constantly going like, leave me behind, guys. Just go yeah. on without me. Just let me die. And I yeah. think like Weary was not, you know, was I guess in his mind enough of a hero to not let Billy Pilgrim be left behind. But the scouts weren't. The scouts yeah. were just like, we're fucking off. Yeah. And I think. Well, I think also Roland was you know, not at, at their level either. right? True. Yeah. But I do think he could have at least tried to keep up with them and abandoned um, Pilgrim if he wanted to. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then because he didn't, I think there's a certain amount of, of anger towards Billy Yeah, that the, it was because of him that they That's got right. left behind. Yeah. But then right around this time, the Germans find them. Yeah. I mean, Roland takes no, no blame, I guess. For, yeah. Uh, no, he never yeah, does. Yeah. So he, he transfers all of that anger to Billy. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, they get it, they get into a bit of a, a brawl, really. Like, well, I mean, Billy's not really fighting back no, or anything. No. Roland's just kind of, you know, trying to kill him essentially. Uh, and yeah, and then the Germans like the look Germans down on them. They're like, the fuck you guys do. They're almost like just like mouths open. Like, what the <laughs> hell are these Americans doing? Like, they don't even understand it, right? Yeah. And like Billy's dressed as a civilian, yeah. so it looks like there's a. You know, a fat soldier. soldier and this soldier is decked out head to toe. Like, yeah, he describes Roland a is, long paragraph he's describing very every well single equipped. thing he's yeah. wearing. It's like wool pants, wool overpants, yeah. wool underpants, this, 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 like everything. Yeah, he's 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 well, well equipped. Um, he got all sorts of, you know, he's got a special triangular knife and all sorts of stuff. And Billy and why is... why do you have that special triangular knife? Yeah, because it, uh, it creates a wound. doesn't close. Yeah, it won't close. Like, <laughs> if it's a thin knife, it just leaves a slit. That'll yeah, close. But a triangle, close, right? no, that, that won't close. Can't do that. No, that's a that's And a you got to have a knife wound. with blood gutters, too. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Billy, I mean, he's dressed like... You know, he's got like a regular trench coat or something like that. Like he does not look anything. Well, he ends up like getting a, a trench coat from the Germans that's like three sizes too small for that, him. Like that's later the on. The waist yeah, yeah, is like yeah. up under his armpits. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, you know, he uh, he also doesn't look like a soldier because no. you know wh- whether he was traveling or however long it took him to get over there. I mean, he's he's not. He doesn't have the buzz cut. You know, he's got a beard and. You know, like fa- lots of facial hair and like not a traditional soldier's yeah. look. Yeah. So, you know, these German soldiers that find them are like, why is this soldier like beating up this weird American civilian? This right? scrawny like, little know, civilian. They don't understand what the hell's going on. But, you know, the the good thing, I guess, is they, they capture them rather than uh, putting them out of their misery right there. Right. So, um, yeah, they get they get taken prisoner and now they're they're getting marched off. Um, uh to wherever they're going to keep these prisoners. Uh, and Billy continues to float through time. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So let's see here. We're into chapter three now. Um, so this is one where he, he goes, uh, he shifts back to when he's with a patient in his office right. and kind of goes through that upside down owl part. Uh, and then he, he gets um, kind of comes back, snaps back to the war. Uh, and the Germans are doing kind of a propaganda 
type piece. So they they get them to reenact the capture. Oh, that's right. <laughs> He's got to pretend to come out of the bushes. Yeah, and and like Billy's kind of doesn't really know what's going on. So he's coming out of the bushes like smiling and stuff and you know the Germans are kind of like why like why is this guy so happy to get captured? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Um and yeah, it just it's just kind of a weird thing. Um but yeah, the Germans shoot their little propaganda piece. Um and it it flips back and forth here in time quite a bit where, you know, he's, he's driving his Cadillac, uh, you know, down the road or he's back to the lions club lunch. Um, you know, uh, at, you know, someone's talking to him about the Vietnam war at this lions club lunch and talking about his son, uh, who's in the green berets. Um, you know, he goes home to nap after the lunch rather than going back to work. Uh, he flashes back to the war and, um, they're, they're marched to a train yard where they're sorted onto different trains. Uh, and there's a dying Colonel there that kind of fills Billy's head with a bit of nonsense about the war. Uh, then they're loaded into rail cars. Um, and while they're doing that, Billy sees, um, like the guards rail car and it's all decked out yeah. with like, you know, there's like a fireplace and yeah. you know, all this food yeah. and that kind of stuff. And just looks all super cozy and comfy and they're just packed like sardines yeah. into this yeah. kind of car where, you know, they got, uh, they got to toss the, um, you know, like the, the, the bedpans and stuff. They got to hold them up to these slots mm-hmm. up top, these ventilator slots. And they, that's how they got to dump their piss and shit out of the train. And so very, very different, uh, in terms of the train cars that the prisoners are on. Uh, at one point on the here. train car, I remember, um, Billy can't even find a place to sleep because no one will sleep next to him because he moans and kicks constantly. Yeah. So we don't know if that's tied to, um, the, like the, his time the slipping through slipping time or, or yeah. just the war, just war, night terrors or whatever. Maybe but both. Yeah. So they don't let him sleep. He's got to essentially sleep standing up because yeah. no one will, will make room for them. And they, t- they tend to, it sounds like the, the soldiers on the car kind of created a bit of a schedule, right? Some would lay down and sleep and others would stand. And yeah. so they, they would have room, but nobody wants to, to do that for Billy. They've all been kicked or. They've all know, done their time yeah. and nobody wants to do it again. Exactly. Um, yeah. So we, we kind of see how it's working and there's, there's also a hobo in the train car, which they don't explain how he's there or, or why he's there, but he's not a soldier. He's just a hobo. And, uh, and I thought he was a former hobo who was a soldier. I could have taken that well, wrong. Maybe I just remembered hobo, but uh, yeah, yeah. He, but he he's he's he and not, Billy tend to they they kind of team up a little. He's bit. interesting because his constant like he's just constantly like I, I've, I've had worse. I've been worse. Like I've been yeah, hungrier. Than this, this isn't this bad. Is, Are you guys kidding bad. me? This isn't bad. Yeah. And so they they spend Christmas together. Apparently they they're snuggled up. They spend Christmas together, um, and. I'm not sure if it's in this chapter, but you know the the hobo does just kind of die. Uh, yeah, at some I mean, point, I mean, again, after his, saying, his last word was something like, "Yeah, it's not so bad." Yeah, I've I've had worse, not yeah. so bad, and then he dies. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, let's see what else happens. I think that's about it. Oh, uh, at the end of the chapter, um, he time slips to when he is uh, kidnapped by the creatures from Planetamador. So let's talk about those guys a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, Right up until I got here, I was finding myself trying to figure out what they're bringing to the novel besides uh, uh, an excuse to put it on a science fiction shelf. Mm -hmm. But I think what it is, what I've landed on as we've been talking, is that it's a way of 
describing what Vonnegut is trying to explain is happening with his bouncing around in time. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, because, the, yeah, the, the creatures have a different sense of time. They and exist in, in they, they, they perceive time differently than we do. Yeah, they, they see they all can of see time this from the start of time to the yeah. end of time. They look yeah. at all of time as if it's a mountain range, mm-hmm. essentially. So yeah. when they look at a person, they don't see like a person with a head and two arms and two legs. Mm-hmm. They're described as actually look like a person looks like this massively long caterpillar. Yeah, of with moments like, of moments yeah. that with baby feet at the end and super old man feet uh, at the at the other end. The other yeah. end and and they basically see all of that person's life as one single moment. Mm-hmm. And so when someone from Tralfamador dies, there's not really any mourning. They don't see someone who's dead. They see, it's described as like a person who is particularly unwell at that particular at moment that in moment, time. Yeah. But through all of these other moments in time, they're fine. They're fine. Yeah. And so there's no sense in mourning in those moments. And so that that's their, their, they, they're saying, they're so saying, it is, goes. so it goes yeah. um, because really you're just dead in that moment. That's right. Um, all those other moments are still living in those moments and you mm-hmm. are still alive. That's right. In yeah. those moments. And from their perspective, um, there really is no such thing as free will because there's no, there's no time they're moving yeah, when, through when in order to looking, make choices. Yeah, when you when you can look at all of time as kind of one string. Yeah, yeah. Then yeah, there there isn't a free choice or anything like that, right? Because you can see the end of the string, even if you're you know you start looking at it at the middle or or whatever. You can see all the way to the end of the string. There's no there's no deviation. Yeah. Right? Um, but yeah, I did I did think of it as a, a bit of an interesting device that um, you know Billy's experiencing this and he just so happens to be abducted by aliens that can perfectly explain to him what's going on yeah. with yeah. his slipping through time and being able to see all these moments in his life, some that haven't happened yet or some that have already happened, and be able to move back and forth. But again, that only that, right? bef- haven't happened or has happened is all dependent on your time your reference in time that's right which to I the Tralfalmadorians is non-existent yeah because it all has happened it, it all has happen, happened yeah. it's all happening yeah. at once that's right but I thought you know when when Billy asked them at one point like why me um they're like oh what a what a what a silly human yeah, what a stupid human question, question. <laughs> like why anybody like yeah. you, 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 you know about like bugs in amber yeah why are they in amber just because it like just, that's just how that's it just goes how it goes yeah. this just is how so this happened is going. that this was what happened during this moment yeah. yeah yeah and it's interesting because that line is repeated i think either the same chapter or the next chapter in the war when somebody else i think billy overhears it he doesn't ask it but somebody else in the middle of of where they've been captured or whatever is like why me I think he was just had his teeth punched out by somebody in a in a conflict. And he's like, "Why me?" And the guy, the guy's, "Why? Why not?" Yeah. And it's that same thing. Like, why? Why does anything happen? Mm-hmm. There's really no reason. Yeah, I mean, you know, going back to the central so kind it of goes theme of like the banality of war and that kind of thing, right? Like the yeah, why does it happen? Why? Why are our children fighting? Why? You know, like it's. Um, I think an interesting question where you know it it I think pushes people to go well you know is there a way to for that to not happen right you know are there things we can do around this is there really some you know free choice or or you know is everything tied to fate um certainly as far as the 
trial Flamadorians and, and Billy, they seem to be able to, you know, look at things as there is no choice. It is a, a series of moments that stretch from here to eternity and, and back yep. uh, and everything is fixed. But, you know, asking that question or, or, you know, having that saying, and so it goes, or, you know, why, why does it happen to anyone? It's just, you're there in that moment. I think, you know, maybe prompts us to think about, you know, are there ways where we can, you know, avoid war or do things differently. Right. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, they're interesting creatures and the fact that they kind of take Billy and put him in a zoo yeah, or, or their version of a zoo kind of thing to me that I, I think was a bit weird in the sense that, you know, like they, they can kind of see all of time and that kind of thing, but maybe they, they have difficulty communicating it to each other. I mean, they communicate telepathically. So realistically, you know, if, if one of them kind of observes something or, or meets someone and can see their entire life in, in a series uh, of moments, um, you would think they'd kind of be able to communicate that, but they, um, they bring him back and put him in a zoo for, maybe for people they, to come and observe. If, right? they, if they didn't do that, though, they never would have been able to observe him in, in the zoo in, in more of a for that for that forever amount of time right you know what i mean like you still need to do the thing in order to experience the thing even if you're experiencing yeah, so it all they at still once still need to get those moments there yeah rather than on earth yeah and i like the description of the the tralfamadorian novels as well where it's like th- th- there's like little bursts of information between breaks and essentially, it's meant to be read as all of these bursts of information being experienced at once. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's almost like, have you seen those things? They take every frame of a movie yeah, and overlap it, it all yeah. into a single image so that you see every single frame in a movie at once. It's almost mm-hmm. like trying to watch a movie like that. Like instantaneously. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's how they experience everything, including yeah. their literature. Mm-hmm. Which, which makes sense with their kind of view of time, yeah. right? And unfortunately, Billy only had one novel to read there that wasn't Tralfamadorian <laughs> yeah. literature. It was The Valley of the Dolls, which I've not read. Yeah. I, I haven't read it either, but, uh, you know, an interesting choice because it's, it's all about kind of drug use. Uh, yeah, it's like drugged up uh, Hollywood women or housewives or... Yeah, something like that. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, so an interesting, interesting read, uh, to, to have as, as your isolated, your one, and, your one single solitary book that you can read. Yeah. And I mean, you got to think for, from a mental health perspective, being isolated on your own on an alien <laughs> planet and you're just reading about, you know, people doing drugs and you're going to be so sad that you yeah. don't have any drugs yourself yeah. to help get through that experience. Exactly. Right. Um, uh, so we get into chapter four here, I think. Um, he is back in time. He's at his daughter's wedding. Um, he knows he's going to be kidnapped after his daughter's mm-hmm. wedding because mm-hmm. um, he's he's been unstuck in time. Uh, so he, he puts on war movie. Um, oh, then the war movie plays backwards for a while. Yeah, and it's like people getting like bullets sucked out of them. Yeah. And like, you know, just kind of a weird thing to uh, to watch. It kind of seemed like the way he was describing the movie seemed like it was, could have been about Dresden, like there was could fire have been. bombing and yeah. that kind of stuff happening. Uh, and then he kind of wanders outside and he's just like waiting around <laughs> to be abducted. Um, you know, the, the flying saucer kind of, uh, you know, comes, comes into play. They, you know, they, What's they it, what I think is interesting there too, is he talked about how like he's walking out in the yard, he's carrying a, a bottle of like, it's 
um, no longer bubbly champagne. Mm-hmm. Um, he knows the spaceship is coming down. He doesn't look up at it. And it's like, to an extent, that's partly because when it actually happened the first time or whatever, when he's bouncing through it, he doesn't actually know it's coming. Mm-hmm. So that's why he wouldn't be looking up. And then every other time, he wouldn't be looking up then anyway because it didn't happen that yeah, way. But at the same yeah. time, there's also no reason to. So it's he like knows it's going to be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah very interesting. Uh, and th- and this is uh, as you alluded to before when he gets kind of beamed onto the ship, um, where he asks the the why me question. Yeah, and they go through that explanation, um, and then they do bring him back to their zoo. Um, they apparently stole a lot of furniture from the Sears and Roebuck. Uh, to to furnish his R.I.P. Sears. Yeah, to furnish his enclosure in the zoo. So, um, they loaded up their spaceship <laughs> just with all this, you know, furniture and TVs and stuff. And obviously, the TV doesn't work when they get it back. Right. To there's the a zoo. just as a picture of a scene from a war movie on yeah. it. Yeah. Um. And so you know he he's observed. Uh. And and he doesn't wear any clothes, so he's just kind of like naked. Uh. In the zoo. Um. Just kind of like walking around doing his doing his thing uh just completely naked um and yeah uh he um he he snaps back from that moment uh and he's he's back on a train in the war so the trains are they were loaded into the rail cars and then they were kind of like moved around as prisoners of war um you know one thing that we forgot to mention maybe was that the different kind of classes of soldiers so officers were loaded yeah. into you know yeah. and, and different classes of of soldier were were in different cars and so they they start to break off some of the other cars and they're going to different prison camps and that kind of thing uh and billy's car is one of the last cars um, you know, to to arrive at a final destination, right? They, he sees most of the other cars kind yeah. of get broken off uh, from the main train. Um, and then okay, so the, the this and this is where the hobo dies. Um, and Roland Weary also dies. He's not in the same car as Billy, um, but we get a little note to, about Roland dying. Um, and he has told everyone in his car that the person who killed him is Billy Billy Pilgrim and has made them swear to get revenge on, on for Roland's death on revenge him against Billy Pilgrim. The last standing member of the three musketeers. Cause the other two scouts we find out were, were gunned down. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I think I'm not sure if maybe Roland or Billy were, aware of it but it's during their kind of capture there's gunshots yeah they're gunshots and they and we know it's the scouts the narrator tells us vonnegut tells us that it's the scouts they had been but roland and bill billy probably are probably don't know yeah Yeah. they think they they maybe got away but they did not and and ultimately i think part of that i don't know if the in the narration it's clear or not but part of it is that uh um they're fighting was so sh- shocking and weird to the Germans that that's kind of why they, they got captured and yeah. shot on the spot yeah. kind of right. thing as well, right? Um, okay, so the train um, arrives to finally, to what, whichever prison, I don't think they named the prison. Uh, and so they're, they're kind of unloaded, which is a bit of a slow process as they've been cooped up in there the kind of the whole time. Uh, and then they're, they're, <laughs> this is where Billy um, gets the, the very funny jacket. So they're, they're unloaded off the train. They're going to be in this kind of prison camp. And it's winter, so it's, it's cold out. Uh, and there's a pile of jackets um, that they're marched to when they get off the train. 
And these are jackets of other dead soldiers, um, so they no longer need the jackets. Um, you know, soldiers that presumably died in the prison camp, and they're told to kind of pick through there and, you know, pick out a jacket that fits. And so, you know, most of the soldiers have no problem doing that. And when it, Billy comes up and it's his turn, uh, they kind of break off uh, the jackets. They're all frozen uh, in a pile, right? So the soldiers kind of break one off and it's kind of like, basically you get what you get. So they break one off for Billy and it is tiny, you know, as, as Todd, you mentioned before, it's this tiny yes. little like, you know, you know, jacket for maybe it was a child or a very small. Yeah, they talked man. about how the 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 it was supposed to flare at the hips, but it actually flares like right underneath his armpits. Yeah, it's like tiny. So I mean, he's already not dressed as a soldier, and now he has this comical jacket. Um, so he's really just kind of this this you know joke of a man to the to the German guards, which you know kind of I think maybe works in his favor. Um, but uh, yeah, so then he we meet um, or we see that. They get shacked up with um, these British uh, officers who are essentially um, very well apportioned in the camp. Uh, <laughs> they they had there was some kind of clerical error, so they were getting these five hundred yeah. um, like boxes of supplies rather than fifty. Yeah, every like, week or every month or whatever it was, and like, they just stockpiled it yeah. all away. And so they're actually, you know, they're kind of like you know, uh, feeding some of this stuff to the guards, right? They're doling it out and they, so they've got to, and they're uh, getting pretty well treated by the Germans in exchange. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that, and their officers as well. Yeah. Um, so I think the Germans appreciate, you know, being able to talk to, to officers, uh, rather than kind of, but don't know. pretend that all the tobacco and chocolate That's and coffee right. yeah, isn't helping. Yeah. yeah and the Germans are nice enough to give them uh, soap made out of the rendered uh, yeah, fat exactly. of, um, Jews and that's um, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I don't know if they mention mention that directly to the English uh, officers or no. It just know, gets mentioned in the yeah, narrative of the book. Yeah. yeah, I don't think. But yeah, so I mean, they're they're doing quite well for themselves, and the Americans kind of come into this, and so you know they've been cooped up in this rail car for for a long time, and all of a sudden they're treated to this welcome feast, and you know it's just this largesse that they haven't really seen for a long time or maybe ever in their lives uh, when they, they roll up into the, the English prison, you know, house. Uh, however, you know, the British are, are, you know, they're very welcoming, but at the same time, they kind of look down on the American, you know, infantrymen or, you know, kind of the, the grunts that, that are shacked up with them because it's, it's pretty much the, you know, kind of privates and, and uh, you know, not, not, no officers or anything like yeah. that in, in Billy's car. Um, and, and so they're kind of like not super happy with the, how the Americans behave themselves or talk or, you know, that kind of thing. These, these are classy English officers, yes. right? So, yeah, they're, they're not super, super happy. We've got Jerry on the run. Yeah, exactly, right? Uh, and, uh, and so, yeah, they're, they're, they're welcome, but they're also kind of not welcome at the same time. Uh, but they get, uh, they have this nice feast. Um, and yeah, Billy has a bit of a, a breakdown and wakes up in the middle of a performance of Cinderella. Yes. Is that in chapter four? Or is that kind of, well, I don't know. Five? I don't have any notes. So. <laughs> <laughs> I seem to recall it was after the feast. Like it's one of the first things that happens after he's picked up by the British, I think. Okay. He kind of blacks out um, during the the food and wakes up in the middle of the Cinderella because he's aware that he's been watching it for a while because he's laughing. Okay. Um, And then he starts kind of screaming. And so they take him off into the med bay and lock him up with some morphine. 
Yeah. The, oh, the, so the, the, the Cinderella is a play that the soldiers put on. Yeah. The British soldiers put on, and that's where he has this kind of breakdown yeah. and gets removed yeah, and put on morphine. Um, yeah, so there's a little bit about um, what you are talking about before, the truffle Mordorians. Um, they're, they are like spaghetti, and humans are like millipedes is kind of how how they describe right that view of time like well i think the spaghetti stream. was describing the stars when they look up oh, at the, the stars, stars they don't yeah, see they individual like points of yeah. light yeah sorry stars are like spaghetti yes they see because they what they see is how the stars are all moving so it's like mm. everywhere they've been in the sky ever is what they see and so it's which all is this like a, spaghetti a in the sky spaghetti yes. yeah yeah so he has a flash to when he's um age 12 visiting the grand canyon um, he gets so scared like of looking into the canyon that he pees himself. When his mom touches yeah. his shoulder, yeah. Yeah, and then he, they flash 10 days ahead of that, and he's in the Carlsbad Caves in total darkness, uh, and again, also you know, kind of very scared of that kind of thing. Yeah. And then he flashes back where he was being deloused uh, and kind of recording names and like kind of getting welcomed into the camp. Uh, and then after their, their big welcome supper, that's where they put on the Cinderella and Billy kind of freaks out. So he gets on the morphine. He dreams he's a giraffe, uh, for some reason, uh, and then goes into another time slip, uh, where he is at the, uh, veterans hospital. Um, and he's kind of going a bit crazy. Um, doesn't want to talk to anyone. When his mother shows up, he kind of hides under a blanket the entire time. Uh, Believe me, I've had those days. Yeah, and he meets uh, his like, you know, neighbor to the right or left of him is this fellow named Elliot, oh, Elliot Rosewater. Gold, Rosewater. Yeah, and so who he, appears in a few other Vonnegut things? Okay, yeah, okay. Um, but he introduces Billy to uh, the author Kilgore, Kilgore Trout, Trout, who also appears in some other Vonnegut things. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah, Kilgore has a bunch of like, you know. B level science fiction. Yeah, he's a book. he's a big big part in um, Breakfast of Champions, which is my favorite Vonnegut novel. Hmm. Um, and I think it's I can't remember. There's a uh, there's a science fiction author whose last name is like a fish, and uh, I think that's, and that's who the Vonnegut kind of was. Bit of a parody. Of... I don't know if it was a parody or just like you know I'm taking inspiration from the name okay, or what, yeah. but it was definitely. Uh, a connection there. Kilgore Trout, though. Kilgore very Trout. interesting. Yeah, name. good name. Yeah. Not a very good writer, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, uh, yeah, his, his, his roommate in the hospital has kind of all these books. Yeah, Rosewater they, is like, the prose is shit, but his ideas are good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Only the ideas. Yeah. But he has like the whole collection and yeah. there's, there's maybe not that many in print to, to be found, but he's there got, was he's like got them Maniacs all. in the Fourth Dimension, yeah. which was about people who were crazy but only because of things that were happening to them in the fourth dimension. That's right. So the psychiatrists in the third dimension couldn't cure them. <laughs> that's right. Well, oh, and that's that's another thing with uh, the trial Thamadorians that uh, how they they educate Billy on um, that humans actually do exist in other dimensions. Right, uh, because the trial Thamadorians, there's like there's five different people involved in. In, in making procreating, a yeah. yeah. And on Earth, there's actually seven. That's right. It takes seven people to make a baby. But but five of those people are, are involved in the fourth dimension. Or other dimensions. Or other I dimensions, yeah. Like, yeah. like non... And it's, it was stuff like, you know, babies can't be born unless there are gay people, like male yeah. homosexuals. Female sexu- homosexuals aren't involved. Or And then there's also elderly people... 
Yeah, and but, babies but in who different have, dimensions. Yeah, yeah, yeah they have but to be like, involved. But yeah. we they can't explain it because we don't understand those fourth those other dimensions, those That's higher right. dimensions. So, but they just have to be there. They're involved somehow. Yeah, they're part of the process. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they're doing something in another dimension to help uh, make it work. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that and there's you know other genders or something like that that exist only in other dimensions and. Yeah, very interesting uh, other little point there <laughs> from, from... The our, amount of things that we could have in other dimensions that we wouldn't know about is a little bit bonkers to think mm-hmm, about. You know? mm-hmm. uh, could have so, entirely different sex organs in the fourth dimension. That's right. I could and, be, and you may need them. I could be having to, <laughs> sex in the fourth dimension right now and I wouldn't even know it. That's right. But you may need them to procreate. I might. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Billy's mother comes and visits him in this hospital. Uh, and so this is... Um, I think this is his hospital stay after his kind of mental break because this is not the hospital stay when he was recovering from the plane crash. No, this is mental break. Yeah. Um, Because his mother comes and is talking to him about uh, his fiance Valencia, who is the daughter of the kind of main optometrist in Ilium, New York. Um, And this is where we find out that Valencia is quite a a large woman. Um, And uh, yeah, she's... um, Okay, what else? Um, so she ends up, because Billy is hiding under the blan- the blanket, she talks to uh, Elliot Rosewater a little bit, um, who is more than happy to you know entertain her with conversation, um, talks to her about some of the bit- books that Kilgore has written, um, and we find out that nobody really knows where Kilgore Trout is. Um, then Valencia comes in um, to talk about their upcoming wedding and... You know, Billy's just very detached, right? He's not uh, not really into it, uh, and so he travels back to the zoo, the zoo on Tralfalmador, where we discover that he, the Tralfalmadorians, have captured a mate for him, um, <laughs> a movie star. Yeah, a movie star, and I didn't. She's got an interesting name, and for whatever reason, I didn't, uh, I didn't put it down here in my notes, but. Um, She's uh, she's a movie star uh, from Earth, uh, and he's very, um, you know, good with her, right? Because they're both just kind of naked and and put together in this zoo, and they're away from Earth. Um, but um, he is very protective, uh, you know, of her, and you know, doesn't kind of do anything until she's kind of uh, you know ready to to you know, have a relationship or to talk to him or that kind of thing. Right. Um, and then we see some of the crowd that visits in the zoo. Um, and one of the questions that they ask Billy, cause they're able to interact with, uh, Billy by using a special kind of translating device. Um, and the creatures ask him, are you happy here? Uh, and he answers was, I'm about as happy as I was on earth. <laughs> right. Which is, you know, he says is kind of the true, the true answer. Um, this is also the chapter where we flash to his honeymoon with Valencia. Yeah. Uh, right. So there's kind of the, the, the sex scene, which is, you know, not really. I'm trying to find that because I wanted to read it. Okay. Yeah. So it's in chapter five. Looks like probably about halfway through. So, um, and again, it's not a very long section. No, it's not. I'm right in the middle of him sort of bouncing around between the Charles Amadorians and, and being back on earth. But we do get a sense that Valencia understands that because she's maybe a bit of a larger woman or, you know, doesn't have the, the greatest oh, personality, that she's very 
she's very happy that Billy has agreed to marry her. Yes. Right. And she kind of is kind of curious why maybe a little bit. And, you know, Billy just seems to have a very kind of lackadaisical attitude. He's kind of like, yeah, I mean, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, I love you. And, uh, you know, it, it, he, he's not really one way or the other, um, concerned with you know her looks or well yeah because at one point after after they have sex i think she says that she's going to try to lose weight for him and and he says like you know it's fine i I love you as you are and she's like really and he has this moment where he's like you know he doesn't say this but he reflects on how he already knows how their entire marriage is going to go yeah and it's basically he says like it's not bad it's good enough yeah so like who cares like yeah so here's the here's here's the actual here's the paragraph um this is just this is the, the the moment of orgasm, I guess. Billy made a noise like a small rusty hinge. He had just emptied his seminal vesicles into Valencia and contributed his share of the green beret, meaning the child they are the, currently yeah, making. Boy, yeah. According to the Tralfamadorians, Tralf- of course, the green beret would have seven parents in all. That's right. Yeah. 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 So I mean, not very graphic. No, uh, no. Not. Not sexy at no. all, right? I, I just the the idea of like, the noise like a small rusty hinge yeah. is just like <laughs> <laughs> that's his O face or O yeah. noise. Um, let's see what else happens here. Uh, so yes, um, she kind of asks him about the war, um, and that kind of you know he he gets up to go to the bathroom and then he's he's kind of back, um. Uh, in into um, the kind of hospital at the war, right? So where yeah, he's, he's on and morphine. he has to pee there as well. So yeah. he's like, he gets out. Of, he finds his way out of the the, the hospital, kind of in the dark. Yeah, gets snagged on some uh, barbed, barbed wire. Fence. A Russian soldier comes by and tries to help him off. Yeah, and he doesn't even notice the soldier. No, he's right? pretty zonked on it. Yeah, still probably on um, morphium. Morphium. Morphine. Yeah. Morphine. <laughs> And then he hears all these people kind of crying out in the darkness, uh, and and so he he kind of maybe is drawn to it or kind of is a little curious, and uh, so he finds kind of the latrines behind the the feast hall, and because all these soldiers, these American soldiers that were on the train, were so malnourished, they had this this crazy feast, this welcome feast. And it really just ripped right through the Oh, yeah. So all these soldiers are just like shitting themselves like crazy out in the latrines, just, uh, you know, crying out in pain. And, and, you know, Billy kind of scrolls by. And this is where we get the little bit of uh, Vonnegut as the author meeting Billy. Yeah, he he mentions that Billy hears one of the soldiers like yelling how he's shit out everything but his brains. Yeah. And And then a second later, and a second later, he's like, oh, there they go. Those are my, there they are. They're gone. Yeah. And then he's like, that was me. Yeah, that's then, the author yeah, right there. There's the little parentheses like that was me as the author. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, we we see that uh, that the author was there, was present, uh, was kind of part of uh, Billy's world there during the war, um, and he just somehow accidentally gets himself back to uh, to the the British um, hospital area, um, and then it flashes back to his his honeymoon where that's where they're kind of talking a little bit um uh about uh, their lives uh and then he flashes to taking the train to his father's funeral 
Um, and he gets woken up on the, on the train because, uh, the, the porter on the train says he's got a crazy heart on Yes, <laughs> that, uh, that everyone can see. Uh, so he, he gets woken up and asked to like, uh, you know, kind of take care of that. Uh, and then back in the war hospital, um, the, uh, there's another injured guy in there that the English colonel comes in to kind of talk to. And this is where we find out a little bit of kind of the interplay, um, between like the German major who's running the prison and the English colonel. Um, we find out the Americans are going to be shipped to Dresden. Um, they're very much in communication. The, the German major and the English colonel are yeah. kind of like best buds, uh, you know, at this prison. And so Billy gets to overhear some of this information that they're about to be shipped off to Dresden. Uh, the Germans have written a propaganda piece about the the Americans that they're poor and undignified and hate themselves and they're by far the worst prisoners of all. Uh, <laughs> and then we flash back to, um, which maybe we forgot to open and, uh, you know, we forgot to mention how the book kind of opens in chapter two with his daughter um, reacting poorly to when he actually starts telling them about his time slipping and his abduction and that kind right, of right because he seems like a lunatic. Yeah, he's he's like writing a book or writing a le- he's written one letter to a newspaper and is writing another letter, you know, kind of laying this stuff out. And his daughter is upset because it's embarrassing the family, and so she's like chastising him. And then we flash into kind of the whole story that we've we've heard so far. At the end of this chapter, we kind of flash back. Uh, and he's now kind of like with his daughter and she's like, Hey, what are we going to do with this guy? He's obviously crazy and doesn't know what the hell's going on. He, he can't take care of himself. Also his furnace is not, and he hasn't noticed yeah, yet. He's right. freezing he's to death. Like freezing to death hasn't noticed. So, um, you know, he gets, uh, Oh, I do have the name of the, the lady. Who yeah. I just found it as well. Montana wild hack. Yeah. The wild hack. Sorry. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So he's, you know, his daughter kind of takes care of him a little bit and helps get the furnace fixed and all that. But basically, they're talking about putting him in a home because he doesn't know what the heck is going on. Um, and yeah, just asking. I think the last line of the chapter is, "Father, what are we going to do with you?" And that's that's the first half and a bit of uh, of Slaughterhouse Five. Yeah. So bringing us to Slaughterhouse Chapter Five. That's right. Thoughts so far. Well, as we as we mentioned, it's it's a it's a difficult book to um, kind of order in your thoughts, right? It, you know, and I guess you you kind of feel for Billy in that sense that uh, you know if he's always being snapped in and out like of of time like that, and that's really happening to him, that it would certainly be difficult uh, to go through life with a very um, and be very present. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, a lot of times in the scenes where he flashes, you know, forward or back. He's kind of not present, really. He's almost a passive yeah, observer yeah, to his own life. he's observing his own life, yeah. right? Um, so we kind of feel for him in that sense because reading the book and having to jump around like that, uh, it's it's difficult to remember where you were, right? And when he snaps back to something, you're kind of like, oh, now I, I, I got to try and remember what that was all about and what the, you know those soldiers were doing or, or whatever that is. So you know that, I think, is part of you know, a way to help us kind of get into Billy's head a little bit. Um, just how much the book jumps around. We kind of, you know, we start to at least empathize maybe a little bit with Billy in terms of having to live like that. It's also, I think the closest that we can get to experiencing time, the way that 
Tralfamadorians do. Mm-hmm. Like we're kind of this is the closest we can get to seeing all of Billy Pilgrim's experiences at once. Kinda, yeah, they're coming. We're solely. still yeah. seeing it linearly, but just the way it bounces around is kind of as close as attempting we can to get. be a more of a shock of information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it it's it's a really interesting way of showing how things like you know the the impact of war, the impact of anything you know is carried with you forward through time. You never know where it's gonna you know mm-hmm. come up again. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, the, I mean, there's no real description of like PTSD or anything like that in the book, but certainly Billy. I don't know if PTSD was a known was thing. A thing. I think then? this was published yeah. in 1969, I yeah. think. So, but yeah, Bill, I mean, Billy is definitely maybe suffering from the war. I mean, obviously that was you know difficult, but also he's gone through other things, right? Like being abducted by aliens, yeah. being naked in a zoo, yeah. uh, you know, falling in love with this uh, abducted movie star um, who they eventually, you know, have this, this relationship together. Living uh, life as an optometrist. I mean, who wants to do that? That's right. Yeah. I mean, I hope you don't have any optometrists. Listening. I'm sure you're living very fulfilled lives. That's right. Well, and especially if you invest in other, you know, businesses, Bill, Billy did very well yeah, from build himself. an optometry empire. If you got to be an optometrist, that's right. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, definitely that, uh, that fractured view and getting all these pieces all, all coming all at once. Um, yeah, I, I think that it does line up a little bit with, you know, as you were describing the book, you know, or how books are to Trial Amadorians, right? It's just a lot of bursts of information, yeah. right? And we, we certainly kind of get that, uh, in this story. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious to kind of see where we go from here. I, I, uh, I know I, like I've read this book a long, long, long time ago and I kind of thought I remembered how things went, but you know, reading the first five chapters, I'm kind of like there's snippets where I kind of remember like, Hey, this is familiar, but I have, I can't remember anything. I know. Yeah. I, I know I talked about, I kind of knew what, what happens in the end, but, uh, now you're not so sure. I, I can't, I can't recall <laughs> at all. I, you know, reading the first five chapters, I'm like, I, I don't yeah, know what I mean, at all. going into this, I don't think I would have been able to tell you anything specific, but like, I remember everything as I'm reading it. Like okay. there's very little, if anything that's gone, jumped out and surprised me. It's all been like, Oh yeah. Okay. 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 But like, if I were to tell you what's going to happen in the last half I mean, we know a few things, right? We know there's a guy who steals a teapot who's going to get executed. Executed by a firing squad. You know, there's one other death, I think, that gets foreshadowed. And uh, we, of course, know that Dresden's getting firebombed. And it's interesting because he talks in the, I guess, in the first chapter about how, um, in his estimation, maybe this is just generally accepted, that that Dresden was sort of a bigger, um, bigger in in a way than um, Hiroshima. Mm-hmm. Which yeah, I, I mean, not, I don't know the details of of it to that extent, but like, I feel like I didn't know, I'd never heard of Dresden until I read this book. Yeah, and and I mean, I you, I think you read this book uh, quite some time ago as well, and you know, I, I read this when I was quite young, um, you know, whether it was in high school or maybe junior high, uh, and yeah, I had never really heard of Dresden, yeah. and there hadn't come up certainly in any history class, uh, you know that. Uh, obviously, Canadi- Canadians were were not maybe as involved in <laughs> that's Dresden, true. right? Like you know, we uh, we we focus on certain battles where Canadians were more present, and as enough. far as our war Fair history. Enough. But yeah, I had never heard of it uh, in in that regard. But um, yeah, I mean, the, the leveling of an entire town through firebombing, and that it was such a you know like a, a very big cultural center yeah. in Germany. Yeah. Um, you know it. Uh, 
it it does not get a lot of talk. Yeah, I, I think in, in the public sphere. I mean, it you know it doesn't really come up a lot. And um, but it was a massive loss of life, yeah. loss of culture, loss of architecture. Um, apparently, it was quite like the you know beautiful city and cultural kind of. Um, you know, centerpiece, um, lots of kind of, you know, music and art and stuff was happening there and was like a vibrant kind of, you know, large community and was completely decimated, unlike a lot of other places, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's certainly, you know, at least as far as what I've kind of heard or that gets mentioned in the historical context, doesn't come up a lot, but maybe the fact that it wasn't one bomb Right, keeps it out of the same mention as like right because you know, that's Hiroshima some of the impact like of Hiroshima is that it look at the magnitude from just a single bomb yeah, is the thing right. there yeah but yeah I mean we're talking certainly you know I, I can't I don't know if they say in this book but you know it's de- it it's a large population yeah um, you know it's it's a large city um, I can't if it's like sixty thousand people or something like that but you know there there's not a a ton of survivors. Um, of of this bombing, certainly people that were on the outskirts of the city and that kind of thing like that. But uh, you know, there was a huge loss of life uh, and a huge decimation of the city. Yeah, up to twenty five thousand people were killed according to Wikipedia. Yeah. yeah, which is maybe not quite as big, uh, you know, as as Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, but still like wiping out the entire city in in one campaign. Um, and I'm not sure. Maybe the maybe it'll get talked about later, but I'm not sure what the impetus for that was within the war, as far as focusing on Dresden, because it wasn't a major, like military type, kind of complex, or or the city was not, I think, known for being very militarized. Yeah. Um. So it was it was really potentially more an attack on like art and culture and that and that kind of thing than than anything else. So, uh, but we'll I think we'll we'll find out a little bit more about that uh, later in the book. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not a, definitely not a super prevalent thing that's talked about when it comes to world war two. I guess it was Dresden was Germany's seventh largest city in the largest remaining unbombed built up area. So it was like, well, we haven't bombed this yet. Yeah. I guess we should just by default. Let's, uh, let's bomb this. Wow. Yeah. I mean, without reading the whole Wikipedia article, there, yeah. there's also this bit here where, um, uh, in, in his biography of Atlee and Churchill, Leo McKinstry wrote, when Churchill arrived at Yalta on 4th February 1945, the first question that Stalin put to him was, why haven't you bombed Dresden? His inquiry reflected the importance that the Soviet Union attached to an attack on the city following intelligence reports that Germany was moving large numbers of troops towards the Breslau Front. Churchill assured Stalin that an attack, an allied attack was imminent. Hmm. So... So it was just because they were moving through there. I guess. Wow. So you have a chance to take out a bunch of troops. Interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I mean, we, we've got a bunch to look forward to uh, in the last few chapters. Um, so we've read five chapters. I believe there's five more okay. um, uh, or, or at least four more. Um, so we'll, you know, we'll, we'll definitely get some conclusion to some of the events that happen as they yeah. get moved to Dresden. But uh, yeah, we know they're going to be moved to Dresden. Pardon me. We know that the the you know Billy's group is going to get moved to Dresden. The American soldiers. Um, we know there's going to be a firebombing. We know there's going to be an execution um, and some other stuff that's going to be happening there. Um, so it goes, and so it goes. 
so yeah um really a book that you know when 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 you get halfway through at least um as we mentioned like you know the sex scene is brief it's not graphic i don't Um, even like calling it a sex scene yeah barely right i mean even the even the language is not Maybe I guess it was harsh at the time, but certainly in our day and age, we've we've seen there's there's much worse um, language out there in in film and books and things like that. Uh, it, you know, it, it is kind of worse language on South Park for God's sake. Yeah, exactly. Right, like it's it's kind of Pick any episode of South Park yeah. and it's would be worse than this. So you know, it's certainly when you read it, you don't get the impression that um, it should be banned. Yeah, really, like. Especially in this day and age, right? When you're talking about challenges in 2009 or 2007 uh, that are still kind of happening around this book, it, it that kind of stuff is tough to justify because there's nothing in here um, that is anywhere near the level of you know profanity or gratuitous sex, violence, drugs, that kind of thing that we see in a lot of other stuff that's out there. It does make you wonder whether or not, or on or whether or not, on some level, it's the anti-war message that the the powers that be are, are opposed to. Yeah, you know, because war is always going to be. Well, we shouldn't say that, but I think certainly there's now, there's it, certain it seems there's, like there's we certain can't people yeah. that will always want war to be an option, and they will always be sending the children off to war. Mm-hmm. So let's not advise children that they shouldn't go to war. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I hear that. Yeah. It definitely is a fly in the ointment of the propaganda machine. Yeah. And yeah, people don't want that. But it's 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 I mean, it's such a good book and I I am a big fan of of the way Vonnegut writes. He's got a very mm. kind of easy, casual, but um really precise style. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you're drawn in, I don't, I don't want to say against your will, but you know, we're obviously we're reading the, the book cause we want to, yeah. but you get drawn in very quickly in terms of, you know, how Billy thinks and how he reacts, uh, to things happening. Right. We, we, you know, we see him as this passive of observer of his own life kind of thing. And, and we get kind of how that affects his decisions and, you know, the, where, where he was in the woods and just was saying, oh, no, just let me die. Like, mm-hmm. I'm okay. Um, we, we get a real sense of his character um, fairly early on. And it's, yeah, like you're, you're saying, it's casual, but it's... It almost it almost feels like you're hearing a story around a campfire. It doesn't feel yeah. so much like a structured it's story. It's organic, yeah. As much as like he's telling you a story, complete with little asides, complete yeah. with like... Like oh, you're sitting is, at a table this was th- having drinks. And, yeah. yeah, and that car- that guy shitting his brains out over there was me, and then blah, 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 and then, yeah. you know, yeah. 10 years from now, this guy dies, so it goes. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's... And that's generally through a lot of his books, his style. And I really appreciate it. So, yeah, we'll be back um, in a few weeks with uh, part two of our look at Slaughterhouse Five. Um, and then after that, I'm assuming we'll do a live to. Yeah, we'll do a, do a live episode to kind of wrap wrap it up. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I think I think it'll be interesting um, in the live episode if uh, if we have any listeners or. Uh, you know, people that want to ask questions about um, kind of the, the 
there's some interesting thoughts on time yeah. in this book, right? You know, we've kind of explained a little bit of how, you know, uh, other dimensions and time and things are to the Trelthamadorians, but it certainly, I think, begs an interesting question that we've, we've touched on a little bit today around that idea of free will yeah. versus everything is, is written because I can see to the very end of your life or to the end of time or what have you. Um, so how could there be any deviation? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think, I think, or I'm hoping that maybe we'll have some people that might want to talk a little bit. I'm about more than that. happy to talk, yeah. talk about that. That's right. I got yeah. big thoughts on that. Yeah. So hopefully we get to get some people that will want to talk about that live. I think that'd be some interesting. Yeah. Discussion. So, you know, mark your calendars for whenever it's going to be. We don't know yet. Yeah. We'll keep you updated. Though. We'll keep you updated. Yeah. Um, uh, in the meantime, uh, you can find our website at blah, 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 media.com. You can find the podcast there as well as links to everything else, including Patreon, buy me a coffee, merch stores, um, all that good stuff. Um, am I forgetting anything? Uh, the Facebook uh, page. Facebook page, yeah. yeah. And you can email us at bandthingshappen at gmail.com if you have any questions, requests, if you want to swear at us, tell us we're stupid. Yeah. Um, and if you uh, listen on iTunes especially, uh, go give us a review. Reviews are super helpful. Yes. Not every um, podcast platform offers Allows, reviews, yeah. but I know iPhone or I- iTunes um, does. Or yeah. Apple Podcasts. I don't know what it's called anymore. Uh, yeah, I think Apple Podcasts. I think it's or, Apple Podcasts. Yeah, something like that. Um, Google Podcasts is shutting down. Oh, yeah. Well, that's sad. Yeah, because that was my podcast platform. They're moving everything to YouTube, which uh-huh. I, don't, I don't know. I'm going to have to find. I think I'm going to start listening to podcasts on Podbean. Yeah. And then I'll support the app that publishes yeah, our own podcast. I, I do use the Apple one. Uh, again, don't even know what it's called. Yeah. Uh, just because it's there already. It comes pre-installed, you know, on your right. phone. Uh, so unfortunately, just, I defaulted into that when I first started listening to podcasts. Uh, but uh, yeah, reviews are super helpful. Um, you know, and, and questions and notes and comments and things like that as well. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we definitely are interested in any, any feedback. Uh, yeah. And, it, and you know, especially if you think any of these books should have been banned, that's, yeah. that's the whole point of this conversation is, you know, where are we drawing those lines? You know, especially when it comes to, you know, when it comes to adults, you know, consuming books on their own, I think, you know, most people agree that they should be welcome to, but a lot of times it comes down to what's being allowed in schools, what's being that's taught right, in schools. Yeah. And that's where the conversation is about, you know, where the line should be drawn. Cause I would say, yeah, you know, nobody in the third grade needs to read this. Yeah. Um, it might be a bit of a challenge. In the it might be a grade, bit of a challenge, but yeah. I, mean, if you had but a, I know for myself, like I, I read this when I was pretty young, Yeah, you know, um, like I said, I, I can't remember if it was early high school or, or maybe even earlier kind of junior high type uh, type hmm. things. But, uh, you know, I, I, I would I could see this being in covered life. in schools or at least in school libraries, because this is like I said, again, it's it's a very kind of casual, easy to approach language. It's not too long. It's just a mm-hmm. little over 200 pages. So it's not daunting for someone. And it does a pretty efficient job of quickly showing how fucking dreadful war can be. Yeah. You know, and not in the grand hundreds and thousands of people died way, just in the mundane yeah. people dying alone in the mud. Well, it's gangrene because yeah, they very had bad individual, shoes. Yeah, it's a very individual experience, right? And, yeah. and I think that helps bring it home as something that people can relate to. 
right? Because exactly. yeah, when I mean, it, when you hear that, yeah, thousands of people died in a bombing or that kind of that is sad. It's, it's too big a number to it's, really. It's tough to yeah. relate to and empathize with on a personal level. Yeah, for sure. But Roland Weary dying of um, gangrene because yeah. he had bad shoes and his feet were like bloody stumps. Yeah, that you can see. You can you can comprehend yeah. it. And he wants revenge. He wants revenge. <laughs> Billy Pilgrim. Will he get revenge from beyond the grave? Find out next time on When Bad Things Happen to Good People. I've been Todd Sullivan. I've been Peter Allen. And until we meet again, go read a fucking book. Go read a fucking book.